Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, brought to you by Biotechniques. This show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm Tristan Free, Senior Editor of Biotechniques, and your host for this, one of two special episodes recorded at SFN 2020 in San Diego. So, just before we get into it, this was recorded with our portable equipment um, and at the conference floor, so you may notice some differences in the audio quality. Um, I was also so captivated by our guest that at times I've got to bring the mic back to me, so some of these questions have been re-recorded. But this is because I was speaking to the wonderful Marianne Martone, a titan of open science and an author of the FAIR guidelines, which encourage researchers to make their data findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable. I caught up with Marianne just after she had delivered her neuroethics lecture on open neuroscience and the meaning of FAIR. So listen on for an overview of FAIR, some examples of the successes that open data has returned to neuroscience so far. Our colleagues Adam Ferguson and others were able to go from preclinical models of spinal cord injury using data that had been collected for other purpose all the way to the clinic with a finding that had been validated on pre-existing data that had been collected in spinal cord injury on patients. And some cautionary tales of where the status quo is directing science at the moment. But there was somebody who came in, they were studying models that were related to a specific disease, and they said, I know this is going to have no impact whatsoever on the field. I also know I'm going to get a nature paper out of it, and that's what my advisor wants. And she goes, what do I do? And I'm like, well, you, you, you got to ask yourself why you're here. Oh, and just listen out for the number of times she highlights this as an opportunity rather than seeing it as a chore. She sure convinced me, and I hope she'll convince you too. So, on with the podcast. So, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, you're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. And could you tell us what you were presenting at SFM? Uh, yes, I was giving the neuroethics lecture on the open neuroscience and the meaning of fair. And can you give us some of the key takeaways from that lecture? Yes. Uh, You may be aware that uh, NIH has joined the other major funding bodies around the world in requiring now that researchers share the data upon which their studies are based. And this policy is going to take effect in 2023, where every grant that comes in needs to have a data management and sharing plan that says not only how you're planning on sharing it at the end, but how you're going to manage it in the uh, beginning, all the way throughout the project. And uh, the FAIR data principles, uh, which, uh, which I was an author, were released in 2016, and they provide a roadmap of how one goes about preparing uh, data so that it is going to be findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. So what are some of the paradigms or issues within science that you think have led to the need for these FAIR guidelines? So in my presentation, um, I took a historical approach and I looked at all of the antecedents that had gone on over the last 30 years to bring us to this point. And I talked about the early days of neuroinformatics that started in the mid-1990s and how myself and a lot of the, the, my cohort uh, succeeded in essentially establishing a field, but reminded people that... Um, Our publishing system that we have is based on a technology that is 350 years old. The first journal was published back then, and that up until around 2011, the major innovation was to transfer that paper to the web in terms of a PDF file. But that if we were really going to solve the problems of neuroscience especially, because it's a very integrative science, we really needed to create complex landscapes of data where one could start to look at correlations and outcomes and other things. And that 
is hard, but it's also an opportunity that we don't often uh, get the opportunity to define an entirely new mode of scholarly communication and scientific communication. So my talk really emphasized that even though this is a directive by NIH and other funders, that for it to be impactful, it has to be something that you willingly participate in and try to do well. And that's hard. It will take resources, it will take time, and it will take expertise. But that we owe all of the people who depend on scientific research to deliver answers. I gave an example from spinal cord injury and how Christopher Reeve came to this conference in 2000 and said, I'm tired of watching rats recover. I would like to recover. And he goes, I don't have much time. He was dead a few years later. And we know that the incentive systems, the practices of individual laboratories, all sort of work against this idea of open data. But that, so that I, I concentrated on the fact that there is both obligations that we have to do more rigorous science, to do better science, but there's also opportunities because throughout my career, different arguments held sway. And originally, neuroinformatics was, look, we're producing too much data, we need better ways to manage and handle it so that we can integrate across different types. Then came, you know, the taxpayers are paying for things like scientific articles and they can't actually see them, so we need to open it up because we have an obligation. Then came rigor and reproducibility and the reproducibility crisis, and we realized we were not doing science in a way that was leading to impact. Neuroscience did not have a good track record of impacting neurodegenerative, uh, neuropsychiatric, and neurotraumatic uh, uh, injury. And so I believe that we had a moral obligation to do better, and I started to say that. I said, you know what, you, you don't need to, uh, I don't need to convince you why you should do this. You have to convince me why you're not doing it. And then data science came in, and you realize this is really the reason. We are not going to understand any of this if we can't throw every amount of computational power and know-how we have at it. And data science needs data, and that data needs to come from you. I had a slide that says FAIR is both an aspiration, but it's also a value judgment. And we have an opportunity now to align the system, align the incentives, align everything much better with what it is that I believe are our obligations to those who rely on us. Okay, and what are some of the key messages that are needed to enact this change? I tried to show incentives, like saying, you know, what are my incentives? And yes, you know, I showed an example of how just purely using pre-existing data, our colleagues Adam Ferguson and others were able to go from preclinical models of spinal cord injury using data that had been collected for other purpose all the way to the clinic with a finding that had been validated on pre-existing data that had been collected in spinal cord injury on patients that said if you controlled perioperative blood pressure, your motor outcomes were much better, especially for certain types of injuries. And that protocol is actually in use at UCSF and has already started to show impact on the patients there. So I said, well, if dramatically impacting the treatment for spinal cord injury is not enough for you, <laughs> okay, what are our other incentives? We are trying to develop credit systems around there. Modern repositories will support data citation. But I said, believe it or not, the major incentive to you is that NIH is now willing, and your institutions are now willing, to start to invest in better data management in your laboratory. And it has been my experience that data management in the laboratory, my own included, is a horror. And it's painful. And so 
even when you're trying to do your analysis and publish your paper, it's painful. Never mind when a journal comes back and says, I'm sorry, I need all the data that's underlying this figure, or you go to put it in a repository. I was very fortunate back in 2021, I was asked by the National Academy of Science to chair the workshop that considered the upcoming NIH data policy and how ready we were. There was a really interesting thread from several of the participants said, that said, the unit we should be targeting is not the individual researcher. It is not the individual researcher who's going to share with an anonymous third party. It is the laboratory that needs to learn how to share with itself, including its future self. And that's a pain point that I think many people could identify with, certainly by the questions that I got. And I said, this is your opportunity to start instituting processes in the lab, tools and things that manage your data effectively. Because as one researcher said, if you can share with each other, then you probably have something worth sharing with somebody else. If you can't even do that, then you're not going to be do anything. And they had a nice quote. We did a special uh, theme for the Harvard Data Science Review where Scott Fraser and Carl Kessem and his colleague wrote a, a, a more detailed piece on the themes. And they said, normally when you go to share at the very end, it's a painful process. You're looking through records. You're trying to figure this out. And you've received virtually no value from putting this in the repository. It's not 100% true because we find the major users of data in repositories are the researchers themselves because they can finally find their data and yeah. open it up and use it. But he says, if you think about these processes throughout, you derive benefit every single time you try to show something to your PI, every single time you try to do an analysis, every time your colleague says, can I see this? And you say, Here's my folder, and here's all the files, and here's my README files. So I really think that data management is something that is an immediate and tangible benefit to yourself. Okay, so this all sounds excellent, but what are the challenges associated with this solution? Why, why isn't everyone doing this already? It's not effortless. People have said that when you really try to get these things going in your laboratory, you may take a hit in productivity early on. But then your productivity doubles, and it stays that way because... You now know what's going on. Every data set doesn't walk off when the graduate student leaves, right? It's a real tangible benefit. So I really just tried to once again exhort that I believe that we have both an obligation to do this, because if this is where the science is going, our incentive system has to align with the science. I used a quote from, I think it was Matthew Schrag, who had been interviewed over the recent um, uh, scandal, like I think it is, over the Alzheimer's data. Yes, yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, you can cheat your way into a paper. He said, you can cheat your way into a grant, but you can't cheat your way into a cure. Mm. Biology doesn't care. And I requoted Christopher Reeve, who said, you know, if it's just a matter of the science that's holding it back, I don't care. But if it's politics or money, then I do, yeah. right? And I said, this is our internal politics, our incentive system. I said, biology doesn't care about our incentive system. If our incentive system doesn't promote what we think is absolutely the best that we can do, and right now I believe that lies in data science. I believe that that lies in our ability to share our primary data, fill in the variance, piece together these complex landscapes as we saw in spinal cord injury, which then leads to us being able to more meaningfully impact the people who are paying for this. Hmm. So, it. It, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's some really interesting key points. I think I think the the uh, thing about um, it's probably it's a simple in air quotes solution. You need to address your uh, your data management and, and improve it, and then. Um, but in the practice of actually doing that is, is as you say, 
really difficult. And that's often the way, I think, with a lot of solutions is sometimes there's, there is a simple but not easy solution to doing it. I think that's a good, good um, quote. Yeah. Um, uh, and then also, um, in terms of the trying to convert it so that people are seeing thing, this now, not just as a directive from the NHS, but as an opportunity to improve things. Yes. Um, sorry, not the NHS, the NIH. Yeah, um, and um, so the... Yeah, I know. So... Um, since the NIH has changed its policy there, and since your fair guidelines as well, uh, how have you seen people responding to that? Are you, are you observing much of a positive change in people's perspective of it as, as an opportunity as opposed to a um, uh, as opposed to a, a task that they now have to, to complete? I would say I suspect that it depends. I, I would hesitate to make generalities because the people that certainly come up to me are the ones who are like, oh, yes, right, we need to do this. But at that workshop, there was a palpable shift in the way that people were talking about it. Whereas before, it was always, I think someone said, right, theft, obligation, and sacrifice. People started to say, no, you know, there's an opportunity here, right? And more and more scientists, I had some senior scientists come up to me afterwards, and they're like, no, you know, this is the way we have to go. And I think it is that combination of the reproducibility issues, which they know were there, but also data science. I think everybody sees that this is the way yeah. that, that, that neuroscience has to go. And the nice thing is, is that you have unique value as a data generator. I was just talking to some data scientists, and they were kind of, you know, making fun of the old guard. And I said, remember, the old guard knows how to interrogate biological systems in a way that you never will. Okay? They're the ones. Their expertise is out here. Your expertise is in here. And maybe sometime in the future, we'll have all these cyborg animals just streaming data to everybody. But I don't think that's happening right away. So you really need the biologists to do what they do well, but they just have to understand their value is yeah. in the data set. It's not what they think about the data set because it's too narrow a slice. It's that's their value. So I think it I think that also people are realizing that yes, we do need to make things open to the world, right? They saw during the pandemic that opening everything up accelerated progress. But I think I used the line someone reminded me, right? Every day is an emergency for somebody. And so if we know that this accelerates things, then what excuse do you have to close it back up again? And I think more people resonate with that. Almost all the questions I had were the certain, the pressures that they're feeling inside of the current system. It's like, well, I can't spend my time, you know, doing data management because my chair tells me I have to publish or my PI tells me I have to publish. And so I really encouraged people to participate actively in defining this. If there are things about this that you're worried about or you don't like, the reason why NIH's policy is such high level and the fair data principles are at a high level is because they know it needs to be interpreted in a way that works for very diverse groups of people with different skills, different tool sets, different traditions. And so if you actively participate in this through societies and organizations like the INCF I, I called out specifically, then you have an opportunity to say, if you're really going to do this, then here's how you should do it to be effective instead of, no, I'm not going to do it. Like we, I, I started off with a big slide that just had 2023 on it in gigantic letters because I said, I don't have to convince you anymore about why you should do this because you have to. But you're being given an opportunity here. 
and you can take it as I'm just going to do the bare minimum because I don't want to put this out there, in which case you will derive no benefit from it whatsoever and nobody else will derive any benefit from it either. And if that's what drives you, fine. But I don't think so. I think most people want to do it well. They're looking for expertise. The libraries are getting in. Institutions are recognizing they need to get in. Uh, I'm on a committee uh, called Helios, representing the University of California uh, Academic Senate, because it's really dealing with openness in higher education, recognizing that there are structural conditions inside the university that would cause a chair to say, I'm sorry, you haven't published enough papers. I think the university has to say, no, 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 that is not what we're going to judge you on. It's very encouraging that the younger generation is both more computationally savvy, so they recognize that it's very frustrating when things are not in a way where they can actually use the tools that they're being trained in. But also, you know, as they start to see these impacts coming out from data science, why would you not say our field needs this badly, right? Well, I think think when you can show, as you did, and as you say you did in your presentation, um, that you can take existing data that's all out there and you can take that from a preclinical through to a clinical model, then there's so much, must be so many other cases of that. Yeah, must be. So, you know, and I go through the effort it took because this was all pre-fair, pre-everything else, and the five years that it took them to get this data and recover it, now you just press the button at the Open Data Commons for a spinal cord injury and you download it. Because the spinal cord injury community, when they were confronted with their reproducibility problems, took a very proactive uh, approach. And, you know, they had a young data scientist, Adam, and he said, I think, that I can, you know, help here, and they're all like, "Here, please take my data, take my data." And now we're committed, and they were committed well before the data policy came out because they saw that it fulfilled their commitment and that it could have real impact. And that I think the main thing is that that they were valuable too, right? Because they, it needed their data <laughs> to do this. Without that data, none of this would be possible. So I think that there is a good chance that both with the incentives and the sticks, if they are put in place appropriately, that we will make the shift. And that's really what I was trying to excite the younger group. I said, this is really for you. I said, I took this opportunity to go back in time and put myself where I was in in the mid-1990s. I said, pre-cell phones, pre-everything, pre-whatever. But we saw a possibility. And yeah, we struggled setbacks, we had failures, we had all of these things. But at the end, now looking back, I say, wow, like we, we, we established a field, we figured out how it works, and now we've kind of, I don't want to say lived to see this because you're not all that old, but you know that, that we were here when now it's like all those things we were pushing for for 20, 30 years, 20 years have come into existence, but now I need to turn this over to you guys. But you have this opportunity now. And I said, you only get it once every 350 years. So take that. You will define how this is going to work. You will define the incentive systems. You will define all that. Yes, you have the whole mass on top of you. But the number of senior scientists who are recognizing this is the way the future is going, right? And so we either ride that or we retire and die, right? You know, that's what we'll do. But I, you know, I, I, I am optimistic about it this time just because... If we had tried this 20 years ago when people were calling for it, it almost assuredly would have failed. And in fact, any policy that was put out did fail, did not impact anything with journals or anybody else. It really required that the infrastructure be good enough. We didn't have the cloud. 
back then. The cloud is a big yeah. game changer, right? Um, researchers now have these fantastic tools where they're generating huge data sets. And all of a sudden, it's like, oops, what do I do with this? I need an infrastructure to manage and deal with that data. So I think that they're more used to working with these things, whereas before, you put everything you need on your 256 gigabyte hard drive, right? I mean, that's that's where you put it. So you didn't need any of this other stuff, and anything else was an imposition. I was actually telling somebody, I remember when the first code repositories came out, and in a project we were on, we were starting to tell our, our developers that they had to use these code repositories, SV something or other. They hated it. They they objected. They said, no way am I going to do this. You know, I, I, it's not the way I work. Within a year, I think, the fact that anybody would not use something like GitHub, which didn't exist at the time, is like, no, it's astonishing. You can't do this without GitHub. I'm kind of hoping now that with the increase in data sizes, complexity of everything, people realize that this is no longer an adjunct that's nice to have. If you don't have these things, you're not going to be able to do a thing with your data, <laughs> right? And if you want to keep storing terabytes and pay for storage, go ahead, or you hand it off to a repository and you know, then go on to your next thing. So I think that we are at a sweet spot now where this all may work. Yeah. So yeah. where it's where it's clear enough to see that there are existing examples of this where it's working and works really well. Yes. Um, and also catching because I think it was interesting what you said earlier about yeah. um, you know you, you can you can fake your way into a paper and mm -hmm. if you're out for yourself then that might appeal to you. Exactly. But I would I would say you've got to think that most people at the beginning of their scientific career are not just in it for themselves because if you were you'd probably go into a different field um, you know you'd like to think yeah so. and so it must be the incentives <laughs> yeah. and the system we have in place that almost can corrupt some people into thinking that well this is what I need to do for my career as opposed to being following the science so That's I think right. what you say about changing the um, changing mm -hmm. the incentives and changing the paradigm with which you within which you work to do science yes. to try and make sure that people retain that kind of you know, I guess wide-eyed positivity. Well, and, understand, and, yeah, understanding um, why yeah. they're there. You know, I mean, I, I've been in, there's a couple of fields, and, and this is, I think, especially true in biomedicine. I think if you are in basic science and you're, you know, studying the cricket nervous system just because you're interested in the cricket nervous system, I think that's, you know, that's a different sort of avenue. But if you're in biomedicine, biomedicine, and if you are funded by the National Institutes of health, okay, then that already tells you what your objective is. You are supposed to positively impact the health of the people who pay your salaries, right? That is why they are supporting. And yes, the fact that you're curious and you're interested and you want to know how this stuff works, that's great. But if you're in this particular field, especially with translational research, right, you are doing translational research because there's a program that says we have to cure ALS, we have to do this, we have to do that. So your research should be doing that always, right? That's, that's your goal. That's why you took the money. And, you know, I had people, I remember, it was very heartbreaking, and I'm not even going to say what field it is, and I'm not going to say anything about it, but there was somebody who came in, they were studying models that were related to a specific disease and they said I know this is going to have no impact whatsoever on the field I also know I'm going to get a nature paper out of it and that's what my advisor wants and I'm like she goes what do I do and I'm like well you know you, you, you got to ask yourself why you're here 
And you could either say, okay, I'm going to go get my nature paper, and then I'm going to go out and do it the right way, and that's what some people do, and you kind of understand that, because if you don't have your PhD, you're not going to do very much. But otherwise, you're like, you know, why, why am I here? And you even saw, I, mean, I think when the, you know, Paul Insel, the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, like said, you know, sorry, we haven't had no impact on this whatsoever and went off, I think, to Google Health or other places because you just, and started to sort of reorganize the way one does it. Because at some point you say, we've pushed this far enough and yep, maybe we're just one more clinical trial away and that cure for Alzheimer's is going to come or at least a treatment for Alzheimer's is going to come. But after doing that for 40, 50 years, you're like, no, no, maybe we need to do something different. Um, and so do you think there's a further role that government or external institutions can play here? It is going to require uh, investments, I think. And I often didn't say this in my talk, but I said after Sputnik, uh, there was a huge investment in physical infrastructure in the universities. Modern universities really took form. I said, I think at some point, once we kind of know how this is going to work, there needs to be a huge investment in IT, in the laboratories. We need smart laboratories. We need smarter tools. We need better tools. But I don't think you can just do that and throw money. I think you've got to know what practices work and how what works best. And once that happens, once we have processes that we can see transfer across labs, then software can make your life a lot easier and it can take over a lot of what you're doing. So I don't think that this investment and this pain is in, is indefinite. I think it's a very finite period over which we're going to say, mm, you know, this is this is hard. But I actually believe that when we emerge from the other side, we will be in far better shape than we ever were. I think I said yesterday, I've never once in my life regretted annotating data too much. I have always regretted not annotating it at all. And we all recognize that it's our future selves who are going to be the most beneficiaries of all of this but I don't have all the answers and I said that's just it nobody does they're like well what about this and what about this I'm like well that's why I think you have to put it on a values footing you have to say well what do you care about here what do you care about if you just want more papers we are paper producing machines we know exactly how that works and maybe again just by you know analyzing another 10 rats or 20 rats some great thing will come out of it but if you look around here at SFN and you look at the posters and you look at the products, data, it's data science. Mm. Let me generate massive amounts of data. Let me do this. Let me do this. Yeah. So it's well, coming. I, right? I, think, I think as well what you say about it being um, a phase that we have to go through as opposed to it being an indefinite thing. I think it, you're and people raising, well, what about this? What about yeah. that? I think that's exactly what will happen is you'll yeah. you'll be doing it and then you'll find, oh, God, that doesn't work. I need to do it this way that's and change it. things. Yeah. Um, and also from my side, I see it. Um, Mm-hmm. A lot more now, um, companies and industry who are purely focused on managing lab data. Exactly. And so I think as that starts to buy in and people yeah. start to and uh, they start to get a money opportunity behind it as well, that will start to drive the advances in making it easier and quicker. It. When industry gets involved, as long as industry doesn't put proprietary standards mm-hmm. in the way, if industry gets involved, the service always gets better. Yeah. It always gets better. So that's why I say if we can make these things work, if we start using standards in the laboratory. There will be tools which will be built on top of those standards. In fact, industry loves standards, right? Because then you don't have to write a customized tool for every laboratory. So we're really pushing this to say, this is going to be difficult in the beginning. It's going to be disruptive. But it will 
uh, it's like I said, when you trim your uh, hedges and after they're overgrown, it looks awful. But that's the only way that it's going to grow again healthy, right? You have to trim all that dead wood out. You've got to just get rid of it and rip it out. And when new stuff grows, it'll grow in much better. So I think that we're at that stage. And so do you have any advice for people trying to improve their lab data? If you ask me what to do, but now I can say, go talk to your library. NIH has a data sharing plan there, right? Go talk to us. Go talk to all the people who have lived through this. We can help you because we have some reasonable and robust tools at our disposal, which we did not have before. We've learned that uh, having five standard metadata fields across all data is much better than having 100 metadata fields in one data set, right? And so everyone's like, well, I can't possibly. We just had a conversation about this. And I'm like, look, we've been trying to get a landing page for every data set in data repositories, not because this solves all the problems, but it solves a lot of them, and it's simple, and everybody can do it. So don't tell me people can't fill out a title, authors, and description. They do it every day for papers. They know what that is, right? We're also learning that there's got to be support services, curation services, those sorts of things. There are now trained people who know how to do this. Are there enough? Never. But we didn't have all this expertise before. Everybody had to plot their own path. There are information scientists who are studying scientists, studying their practices, learning, you know, what the average researcher does and saying, you know, here's a better path for you. So I just think that there's a lot of resources, but just like, you know, the development of the nervous system where we produce too many neurons and muscles and that initial connection is really sloppy, the only way it gets refined is when they start working together. And then you get rid of the things that you don't need. The ones that are effective stay. I think we're in that phase where we have enough, where we've made those connections. And yeah, like you say, well, no, that didn't work. You get eliminated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get strengthened. But then we get to do useful work. Yeah. And we don't do useful work until it's done at scale. So I am hopeful. I think everybody is a little nervous. But I just don't get the feeling that it's going to completely crash I didn't say this yesterday, and I kind of regretted it, but, but I was talking to some a young researcher who said, oh, yeah, you know, I spent the pandemic just, like, outfitting all my lab. I said, I'm going to implement, you know, fair practices and open practices across my lab. And I said, oh, you know what? You should, like, write a paper and, and share that. And he did. And so I actually drew on this paper where he very much shared, this is what it took. This was really hard. This gave me a high payoff. This was hard. Haven't seen a payoff yet, but maybe we'll see a payoff in the future. This really didn't take much time, you know, and so he just sort of laid it out. And I think more of those types of articles where people said, I did this for my type of data, and here are the practices that I found effective, will also give people some starting points where they don't have to go through this de novo every time. The main thing you always have to think of with data sharing is even, you know, as I said, something, somebody and something other than you are going to be using this. So what do I need to say and what do I need to do to make it more likely, not 100%, but more likely that someone's going to understand it? So with with that in mind then, do you have any key tips for someone who is preparing their data to be used in an open source repository? What should they include as an absolute necessity? What are the key things that you would want them to have? Well, one of the things I usually tell people is that now with the data management and sharing policy, the end goal is that your data will be in one of these repositories. 
So why don't you start with those repositories? They're the keeper of the standards. There's the ones who are saying, well, these are our required fields, but most of them, especially for the specialist repositories, will say, here's our recommended metadata fields. So if you just look at that, they'll have templates, they'll have documentation, and they say, well, you're, you're going to want these 10 things. Well, then as you go along, you're going to set up your templates to say, I'm going to collect these 10 things. So then when it comes time to put it in, great. If that repository, like the, you know, neuroimaging is used a lot, and neuroimaging is really a special domain. It is born digital. There's no active laboratory component. And people who are in neuroimaging are digital people. They're computational people, right? Because you immediately have to sort of use these packages and things. But the repository for them in brain, the, the major repositories, use the BIDS brain imaging data structure, which is an endorsed standard by the INCF. And if you need to get into these repositories, you have to pass through the validator that says you've created bids correctly. So if you know that at the end that is what you're going to have, there are all these tools to create bids out of the major formats, right, other things. So you put that in your pipeline from the get-go, use all the apps that are now been developed around bids so that you can do your work, even some of the cloud apps that you can do. And then in the end, you know, you press the button, you have all your metadata because there's their metadata schema, you have the file format. If you wait till the very end to do all of that, that's when you get in that situation where you're scrambling and you're like, oh, I don't have this and I don't have that and I don't remember. And sort of Like when you write a paper but you don't <laughs> yeah. reference as you go. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So with these tips in mind, could you outline the FAIR data principles as I think obviously these give a fantastic guide for um, these kind of practices? You know what the FAIR data principles are, findable, accessible, interoperable, usable, there's actually 15 things that you're supposed to pay attention to. And the first two are ones that I think kind of flummox people a little bit. It's like, well, you have to have a persistent identifier and you have to have rich metadata. And it's like, but it doesn't tell you what rich metadata are. And they're like, persistent identifier, I don't really get that. Like, why is that number one? Well, a repository gives you a persistent identifier, like a publisher does, so that the links don't break. You know, if the links break, then forget it. But I think a really powerful encapsulation of FAIR, what at least I try to convey to researchers, is that there's, I believe, this basic unit of FAIR, which says, I identify things that I need to refer to again. And the metadata that describes that identifier should come along with it. So I have my DOI and underneath I say, well, this data set is called this and these are the people who are produced it, you know, produced it. And I said, if you have a resolvable identifier, then that, you know, you plug it into your browser and it says, well, here's your article, here's what you have. And I said, if you kind of think about that and you start to think about identifiers, and this is a hard concept for people in, I've noticed in laboratories, I have a rat, sacrifice that rat. Everybody in the lab takes tissues. Everybody says this is specimen number one. Mm. Well, in fact, all of these things came from the same rat. They didn't come from any rat. They're like, oh, it's genetically identical. I'm like, I don't care if it's genetically identical. That one was in that cage, that one was in that cage, this one you know, was handled here. So if you give your rat a unique identifier and in your lab records, have that unique identifier and you have a master sheet that says this this rat this identifier and here's how old it was and here's who I got it from and here's its sex and you have all of that right you start to build up these 
these tools in the laboratory where you recognize that you are trying to identify things that need to be referenced in other things. And doing that with free text or anything else ends up being a nightmare. Doing it with identifiers is great, but if identifiers have no metadata, then they're useless. So you go with identifiers, what things do I need to identify, and metadata that describes that object. And as you build these up, whether it's in a spreadsheet, whether it's in a readme file, I don't really care. You start to build up the basic building blocks of FAIR that will allow you to incorporate these things into many applications. And then you ask the system, how many specimens were generated from this animal and what experiments did they end up in? It's a query, right? You don't have to go back and say, well, specimen one, this was from a rat that was this old, so it might be this rat over here, but I don't know. So you start to think about things in terms of little units, and that's really what FAIR says. So I said, think identifiers, think metadata tied to those identifiers, so that both a machine has an easy hook to be able to use these objects, but the human always knows and can verify that this is the right thing. It's arcane in many cases, but as you start to break it down, you're like, oh, I see. If I'm just the only one ever using this particular rat, then it can be subject one. But the minute you want to use those things in another experiment, your data are not independent. They come from the same animal, and you should know that, right? You should know that. So I think we can start to articulate these practices. I think tools and things, if you look at them, underneath, there's always an identifier that's given. And you put in metadata, right? Use that identifier to reference other things. That's the sort of essence of FAIR. Excellent. Well, Marianne, those are all of my questions. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed uh, and were convinced by Marianne's argument for FAIR data um, and open access to data in neuroscience. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>